So um, with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into the Psalms right now. And I try to uh, jump into this. This is going to be Psalm 46. If you guys want to stand for the reading of God's word, uh, we'll get into it one more time today. This is a famous one. I think you probably come back to it at some point in your life. If you've been walking with the Lord for a little while, it'll sound familiar. Here's what he says in verse 1. God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters foam and roar, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, Selah, which simply means pause and just let this sink in. There's a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage and the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Selah. Come and behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God, he says. I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Say law. Father, we find rest knowing that that's who you are. Father, I pray for the person who's coming in today and is in desperate need of rest and in peace, a little bit of stillness. Father, I pray that you would be lifted up high in light of our problems, the things that are bringing us fear and anxiety today. God, and I pray that all those fears would be stilled in your presence. Lord, we look to you this morning. We surrender to you. We thank you for your word. Just pray that you're lifted up today in everything that's said and done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Um, I like fast things, right? Anybody else? I, I, I like fast cars. I like fast jets. I like fast roller coasters, fast water slides. I like being efficient and covering a lot of ground in as little time as possible. Um, I still cheer for the hare to beat the tortoise. Anybody else that way? You're like, I hate that story. That is so not accurate. Um, <laughs> It's a false dichotomy. You know what beats slow and steady every single time? Fast and steady. Like that, that, that will always win. It's not, it's not one or the other, folks. Like you can be fast and steady at the same time. Um, <laughs> yeah, I cheer for that thing all the time. I like cheetahs. Um, still go to the zoo and watch them run with Caleb. That's my favorite part of going every single time. Uh, my favorite player growing up was Nolan Ryan. He could throw a ball 100 miles per hour, literally all game long, past Past the ninth, into the ninth inning and stuff, he would just go all game long, 100 miles per hour. Cheer for Usain Bolt, even though he runs against the Americans. Like Michael Phelps, I'm still cheering for him, even though he's like 80 years old now. And, um, no, he's not. Um, I'm grateful for clothes, clothes dryers and dishwashers and fast food restaurants and drive throughs and fast internet and stuff like that. I just, typically speaking, I like going fast. Probably why, like, Psalm 46 is kind of a tough one sometimes. John Orberg is an author and a pastor. He was a pastor out in Chicago, and now he's at Menlo Church in California. 
He tells a story about being new to Chicago and really struggling to adjust to the pace of life that's there in Chicago. He was new there. If you've ever been to Chicago, much like kind of downtown Dallas in a lot of ways, it's fast-paced. It's hurried all the time. He said he was struggling there because, like, everything was go, 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 and he was just kind of feeling a little burned out and tired. So he calls his good buddy Dallas Willard, who happens to also be a giant in the faith, written many books and commentaries and stuff like that. And he calls his friend Dallas Willard and he says, Dallas, I'm struggling here, buddy. Like, what do I need to do to be spiritually healthy while I live here in Chicago, given all the demands for my time and things like that? And Dallas thought about it for a second. And then he finally said this. He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. And John goes, that's awesome. That's great advice. Thank you so much, Dallas. I wrote it down. Like, what, what's, what's next? What else do I need to do? And Dallas just sits there in quietness. And John's like, Dallas, are you there? Did you hang up? What else do I need to do? Dallas, hello, 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 hello. Like, finally, Dallas chimes in. And he's like, he's like John, stop. Stop. I've literally given you everything that you need to succeed in your relationship with the Lord. You need to, you need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry in your life. John Orberg writes about that. He says this is one of the most defining conversations in his life. He writes about it in his book, The Life That You've Always Wanted. And he says, uh, he says, hurry is the great enemy to our spiritual health today. For many of us, the great danger is not that we're going to renounce our faith. It's that we're going to be so distracted and so rushed and so preoccupi preoccupied that we'll settle for a mediocre version of it instead of living it to the fullest. Meyer Friedman is the cardiologist who coined the term uh, hurry sickness. Anybody heard this term before, hurry sickness? It's a, it, he's a cardiologist who coined this term to describe um, the sickness uh, that he was seeing in so many patients that was because of the fast-paced life that they were living. You know when he coined that term? It was 1959. <laughs> you think things have changed a little bit since 1959? Like, can you think about that for a second? Like, back, back in 1959, people were feeling stressed and anxious, like they, they didn't have enough hours in the day to get things that they needed done, done. I mean, this is a day, like, I, I'm thinking about it today. It's like, I get frustrated if I can't download a movie on my iPhone while I'm flying over the Atlantic Ocean, like in three seconds or less, right? I, we get that frustrated and everything, right? You think it's still an issue today? Um, Kevin Chapman is a guy who he writes about two things that are really driving hurry sickness in American culture today, probably more than anything else. But he says uh, the w first one he calls the normalcy bias, which is essentially this keeping up with the Joneses mentality. But he says the problem is that people who give in to the normalcy bias, they believe that money is the key to happiness. And so that they're going to be accepted by more people if they're able to acquire more things. And so what ends up happening is we live way above our means in order to be accepted by other people, to be able to be seen as awesome in front of other people. And then we spend the better part of our years working harder and harder and harder so that we can pay off that kind of lifestyle. Think that's an issue in Dallas maybe? The second thing that he talks about is, um, is our need to achieve, which can be a fantastic thing in American culture today. We achieve a whole lot of things. Our technology is advanced at, at rates like, like never before. And so it can be a fantastic part of what we do um, unless we start thinking about our achievements as the most central part of our identity. That's when it becomes dangerous, he says, because if our achievements begin to define us, then we're going to stop at nothing to keep achieving more and more and more because it's central to who we actually are which may have a lot to do with uh, the inflated sense of pride and ego that we see a lot today. Um, the other flip side of it is that if our achievements define us, then so will our failures. 
which may have a lot to do with the amount of stress and anxiety that we're seeing today. I mean, uh, the National Health Institute of Health says that 31% of our annual health care expenses, which is nearly $300 billion, um, is being spent on, on stress and fear-related issues. 75% of all doctor visits um, are stress and anxiety-related. Nearly 25% of all of us will be at some point in time in our life uh, will be afflicted with debilitating circumstantial anxiety at some point in our lives. In other words, we're not talking about uh, medical imbalances and things like that. Uh, debilitating circumstantial anxiety. In other words, church, it's, it's not just, it's, it's not even our problems that are really the problem anymore. It's, it's how we think about our problems and it's how anxious we are about our problems, and it's how worried we are about our problems that's really the problem. And in the middle of that setting, the Lord just steps into the middle of this psalm, and he gives you and me permission to simply just stop and to be still and to know that he is God. I love the way that the Amplified Bible puts it. He says, let it be and be still. In other words, like whatever that thing is that you brought in here today, the thing that kept you awake last night and wouldn't let you sleep, whatever that thing is, he says, let it be and just be still. Today's English version says, stop fighting me. I like that one. Stop fighting me. Just know that I am God. Stop battling. Stop warring with me. Give up. Know that I am God. The message, which is a, a, a paraphrase by Eugene Peterson, he says, step out of the traffic. Take a long Loving look at me, your most high God, above politics and to get above every other thing in your life. Church, what's fascinating about this psalm is that the entire thing is from the perspective of the psalmist until we get to verse 10. In verse 10, it's almost as if the, 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 the father just can't help himself. It goes first person all of a sudden. He just jumps in there and he says, finally, like enough is enough. Just be still and know that I am God. Church, I mean, the whole thing is from the perspective of the psalmist, and then all of a sudden, verse 10, God is just like, I, I, I'm enough, come on, be still, and just know that I am God. In other words, like, he's not suggesting, this isn't a great piece of advice that you may want to hold on to or not, he's just commanding, this is kind of an emphatic command, kind of like, thou shalt not lie, cheat, or steal. Uh, be renewed in the spirit, Ephesians says, be angry and don't sin. Uh, be gentle to all people and able to teach. Paul's going to say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, right? I mean, Jesus is going to demand the exact same thing. He's going to say, don't worry about your life, uh, what you eat or what you drink or what you wear. In other words, he's not saying, hey, try really, really hard not to worry. You may want to think about being less stressed and less anxious and stuff like that. He's demanding. He's saying, no, 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 don't do this. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, drink, or wear. Don't worry about these things. He says, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. How much more valuable are you than they? Church, all in all, there's going to be over 500 references in Scripture that are all saying essentially the same thing. Be still. Don't be anxious. Don't be worried. Don't be afraid. Be still rather than any of those things. And I promise you, like, when he does this, it's not arbitrary. It's not, um, there, there's intentionality behind it. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden because they are afraid of missing out. They got a bad, ca bad case of FOMO, right? They don't want to miss out on what could potentially be, so they eat the, the forbidden fruit, and, and we've been suffering the consequences forevermore ever since then. Exodus 22, the Israelites are afraid of being abandoned by God, and so they build a golden calf, and they bring on the judgment of God at that point in time. 
Numbers chapter 13, the Israelites are afraid of, of defeat, and so they stop trusting in the word of the Lord, and it keeps an entire generation from entering the promised land. 1 Samuel 15, Saul's afraid of his future, and so he disobeys God and ultimately loses his kingdom. In other words, church, like not only is it a sin that creates more sin in our lives uh, because we've stopped trusting the Lord, but it's one of those problems that just creates more and more problems. I love the way John Piper talks about this. He says, um, think about the number of sins that are connected to the sin of worry or anxiety. Worry about money will cause you to hoard or steal. Worry about success will make you irritable and impatient with people around you. Worry about relationships will make you withdrawn or indifferent toward other people. Worry about what others think about you will make you lie or stretch the truth. Here it is. If worry could be conquered, a mortal blow would be struck to so many other sins. Church, it's why the Lord interrupts this psalm and he simply says, be still and what? Know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. In other words, church, like our problems aren't actually the problem. It's how we think about our problems. It's, it's our anxiety about our problems. It's our worry and our fear about our problems that's actually the problem. I mean, it's, he's not saying be still for stillness sake. He's not saying, hey, uh, be still and go watch a good movie. Be still and go watch a good football game. Be still and have a great margarita on a happy hour or something like that. He's not stillness for the sake of stillness or anything like that. It's intentional. What he's saying is still yourself in such a way that remembers what you know to be true about God and then live in that stillness rather than fear. It's a lifestyle that he's, in, that he's inviting us into. Yes, be still in that moment for the person who's afraid. Come to this place. Get everything else around you away. Be still in that moment, but be still in such a way that remembers what you know to be true about God in light of the problems that are around you, and then live in that stillness rather than fear. Church, everything that, everything that he's talking about here in this psalm, it has to do with what you know. The whole thing is about what you know, about what you know about God in the middle of your problems, in the middle of the thing that's bringing you fear. Church, like that's what fear is. Fear tries to undermine what you know in that moment. Fear is a symptom of what your mind is making up, uh, what your mind says is true in, a certain un in an uncertain situation. That's what it is. It is a symptom of what your mind says is true in an uncertain situation. I remember a few years back, we uh, went out to family camp out at Pine Cove. And uh, one of the days we were going to go check out the high ropes course and Caleb was about four years old at the time and I wanted to go do the, I wanted to go do the zip line, right? That's the top of the tree line, really, really high zip line. He's four. I'm thinking, hey, this is, I'm sure it's fine for a four-year-old, right? And so we go over there. I'm like, Caleb, come on, buddy. This is going to be great. We're going to go do, do this thing together. It's going to be awesome. He's like, daddy, I'm not going to do that. I'm like, why? He's like, I am going to die. <laughs> and I was like, buddy, you really think that I'm bringing you out here just to kill you? Like, it's just, like, do you really think that I'm suggesting something that's going to cost you your life? And he's like, no, no, no I think I'm going to die. Like, that, Dad, look how high that is. That's terrifying. Like, we're not supposed to do that. I, like, I'm going to die if I go down that thing. And so we sat there underneath the, the zip line for a little while, and I just let him watch all these kids and all these adults and stuff go down the zip line for a little while until finally he came to believe he was not going to die on that thing. Church, fear was telling him, if I go ride that thing, the worst case scenario is going to play out. Fear was telling him, if I go down that thing, like there is going to be terror, there's going to be death at the end of that thing. When the reality is that that was an opportunity that we had and he ended up going down it, we had an absolute blast and that was the truth of the matter is that no one has ever died on that zip line. Church, that's what fear does. Like it makes up these truths in your mind and so the entire thing, this entire psalm is about what you know. Church, like why in the world is it so hard for guys to ask a, ask a girl out on a date? Guys, you remember this, right? College, high school, maybe young adult life or, or something like that. You remember having to do this? Uh, I mean, it's one of the most terrifying things in the world because in your mind, you make up, she's gonna say no. 
And she's not just going to say it politely, right? She's going to shame you. She's going to start laughing at you. She's going to start making fun of you. She's going to post it on Facebook. She's going to let the entire school know about it. You're never going to get a date again in your entire life. You're going to be defined as a loser forever and ever and ever. Like these are the things that play out in your mind. That's what fear says when the reality is there may be a relationship that's a beautiful relationship to, 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 uh, to come out of that thing. It's the same thing with evangelism. Why is evangelism so difficult for many of us to engage in? It's because we go through these things in our mind and we're sitting there going, okay, well, what happens if they ask me a question that I don't know the answer to? I, I'm going to blow it for God. I, eternity is on the line, and literally I could blow the entire thing. I'm just not even going to engage. Like, I could blow it. God's going to be angry at me. He's going to be like, well, I'm going to have to delay my return again because uh, i got to wait till this joker fi figures things out. Uh, he's going to be mad at me. Like, uh, heaven and hell depends upon my ability to perfectly articulate this way, this thing in a way that they're going to fall before the feet of Jesus, bow and give their life to him. Like, it's all dependent upon me. Like, church, what if we knew that that's not how it played out? That's what fear says. Fear says worst case scenario is going to play out. But what if we knew that he's the one who actually takes care of the fruit? Like, what if we knew, like Paul, when he says, I can plant the seeds, Apollos can come, they can water them, but it's God that's actually going to bring about the growth. What if we knew that that was the truth? What if we knew that he was the one that went before us and that provided the path for all these divine appointments, and he set up all these things for us to walk in, and he's the one that does the heavy lifting, not us? What if we knew that he was satisfied by us walking in faithfulness, recognizing that he's the one that's going to bring about the, the achievements, the success, the fruit, all these different things that we're so anxious about? Like, what if we knew that we were already beloved by the Father and that was not dependent upon the things that we always do? Like, what if we knew all these different kinds of things? What if we knew that his disposition to me in Jesus Christ is one of kindness, kindness, because Christ is our propitiation, like, what, what, what if we knew that he was with us always and he promised to never leave me nor forsake me? I'm telling you, church, like, it's all dependent upon what you know. If you know who God is, it is a game changer and fear can dissipate. It's the entire point of this psalm, by the way. Like, I don't have to be afraid because why? Verse 1, he is my refuge and he's my strength. That's who he is, church. He is my refuge and he is my strength when I feel weak. He is my refuge. You know what a refugee is? A refugee is someone who's had to flee their home because war has, has, has decimated the entire thing. They have no place to go back to. And so they're seeking a place of refuge, a place that they can go and be safe. It's exactly how the psalmist is describing the father right here. You are my refuge and you are my strength in the middle of my weakness. He is a very present help when I'm in trouble. In other words, church, like he's not what fear says that he is. Fear in the middle of all this uncertainty, fear would have you believe that he's callous and he's far away in the middle of your troubles. Fear would have you believe that he can't see the things that are going on in your life. Fear would have you believe that maybe he can see it, but he certainly doesn't care about it. Fear would have you believe that he is far away and wants nothing to do with the troubles or that the things that you're feeling anxious and worried about, like that they're, they're elementary to him and he could care less. Like, that's what fear would have you believe. But like Paul's going to say in Romans 8, 32, I love what he says here. He says, he who did not spare his own son, church, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? In other words, it's, it's an argument from the greater to the lesser. In other words, like, like he was willing to send us his one and only son to suffer, bleed, and die that you and I may be saved again for the penalty of our sins. Why in the world would he do all those things? And why would we doubt his, his ability to inter, intervene right now and to love us and, and to graciously give us all things? Like if he's willing to do all of that in the sending of his son, why would we question whether or not he cares about us right now? Or why am I so afraid that he won't also graciously give me all these things? Peter's going to say, cast all your anxiety upon him, knowing that he cares for you. 
So like, that's what we need to know, that he is our refuge, he is our strength, he is our ever-present help in times of trouble. He cares about the things that are going on. Fear says that he's far away and that he doesn't care, but the reality is that that's who he is. He is a refuge, he is our ever-present help in times of trouble, that he absolutely cares. It's George, it's George Mueller when... Um, we talked about this a number of weeks ago. Someone asked him, George, like, how, how are you so peaceful when everything around you in your life is falling apart? Literally, that's what was happening. His wife was sick, debilitating sickness. She would eventually pass away. He had just started a brand new orphanage, taking in all these orphans into this home. He's caring for them all. No father, no mother, no physical provisions, all kinds of, all kinds of fallout from these things. Literally, his entire world is falling apart. People are going, hey, how are you so peaceful in the middle of this thing? You remember what he said? Easy, I, I rolled up a hundred cares upon the Lord just this morning. Remember that? Like, I, I, in, other words, in other words, yeah, like the things that are going on around me in my life, like, they're terrifying. They are legitimate fears, but, but I, I cast them all upon Jesus, knowing that he cares for me. I rolled them all up, I took them, I named them, and I threw them upon him, because that's what he said to do. He said, hey, let, let, he said, take these things and throw them on my shoulders. I'll take them from you. I'll take them away from you. I think it was Greg Mott back in the college days. He taught us a way to pray that uh, I've never forgotten. And still to this day, most Monday mornings, this is kind of what, how it plays out in my office upstairs. But he says uh, he would always get in the habit of kind of coming and on Monday mornings or a different day of the week for him, he would just take loose leaf paper. So he would, he's like, I didn't even bring my journal. I didn't bring this thing that I was gonna keep. I would take loose leaf paper and I would begin the morning. I would get down on my knee and I'd just say, okay, Lord, um, search my heart, let me know my ways, see if there's any error, if there's any sin inside me. Help me to see what I'm afraid of today. And so he would go and he would make a, a, a column on this, on this sheet of paper, sin at top, um, things that I'm afraid of on the right. And he would just kind of go down this thing and he would just, things would start coming to the surface. Here are the things that I'm battling with. Here's the things that I'm stressful about, that I'm, uh, that I'm these sins that I haven't been able to, to really just root out of my life at this point in time. And then he would just simply say, okay, God, what's bringing me fear? Well, I'm afraid for, I'm afraid about my kid's future. Like, I'm terrified about this. I'm terrified about the world that they're growing up in. I'm terrified that they're out there about and I don't know what's going on in their life. I'm terrified about what's going on with my spouse. I'm, I'm terrified about finances and I'm, I'm terrified about it, the, the health of my loved one over here and what's gonna, how that whole diagnosis is gonna play out. And you just start writing out these things. This brings me fear, this brings me anxiety. I'm, I'm fearful about the future of my ministry. I'm fearful about all these things. He would just start writing these things out. And then he would write, why? Why am I afraid of these things? Well, because I believe that success is what's necessary for me to have joy in my life. Because I believe that this is what is gonna make for a happy child and a joyful child in the long run. And he starts writing out all these things. And at the end of the time, he just taught us, he said, take that list of paper and just wad it up in a giant ball and throw it in the trash. And he said so many times he'd be out there in the living room, the fire would be going, and he'd just take this loose leaf of paper, here's all my anxieties, here's all the things that I'm battling with right over here, and he'd just wad it up and toss it into the fire, just cast all of his anxieties upon the Lord, knowing that he cares for you, and that's the invitation that's on the table, to still yourself in such a way that you know that he is God, and that he's the one who takes those burdens from you. And so he would just sit there and just say, Lord, that's what I'm doing. I'm casting all these things on your shoulders. You are my refuge, God. You are my strength. You're a very present help in times of trouble. It's who you are. You care about what's going on. And, and, and you intervene. You have the power to do so. This is what's true. You care about these things. You see me in the middle of these things. You're a very present help in times of trouble. And said, so God, would you take this and would you help? It's all yours. It's exactly what the psalmist is saying. 
He says, verse 2, he says, therefore, church, I won't be afraid because that's who my God is. I'm not going to be afraid. I'm not going to be crippled with fear and anxiety in the middle of the situation. That's who he is. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the, this is terrifying stuff, by the way, right? Any of you guys ever, ever lived through an earthquake before? Maybe you lived in California, you've been, been through one of those things. Chuck Swindoll used to always talk about this at seminary in class, but he would always say um, living through an earthquake was one of the most terrifying experiences, a 6.0 specifically, not just like a little tremor, but he goes, Once, you haven't lived until you made it through a 6.0 earthquake. But he described the whole scene and he said, there's nothing more terrifying than that because you're painfully aware of how inadequate you are in the moment. You can't do anything about what's going on. There's nowhere for you to go. There's nowhere for you to run and hide. Best you can do is like sit in this little doorway and get shelter from everything else that's falling around you. He said, I look out my window and literally the neighbor's pool is doing this thing. It's a, like a wave pool going on there. You can see across the highways and highways are being crushed in half. They're falling in the middle of that thing. Church, and that, that's exactly what the psalmist is talking about right here. Though the earth gives way, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though everything around me is crashing in, though these are legitimate things that, that, that we can always be afraid of if we, if we chose to, though everything is taking place all around me, I still will not fear. Verse 4 says that he is like a river whose streams make glad the city of God. I love this picture right here. He is like a river whose streams make glad the city of God. In other words, in other words church, like he can actually satisfy the deepest desires of your soul. He knows how to bring you gladness and he knows how to bring you joy. How many times do we, are we crippled with fear and anxiety because we believe that this thing is the thing that's gonna bring me joy. This is the thing that's gonna bring me gladness and yet, that's, and that's why we're so afraid. What he's saying is, he is like a river whose streams make glad the city of God. He knows how to provide you those things. Jesus is gonna say the same thing, Matthew 6, 33. He says, don't worry about what you're gonna eat, drink, or wear. Don't worry about even tomorrow. Uh, he says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And here it is. All these other things, they're gonna be added unto you. Seek him first. His righteousness, seek him first. Uh, his righteousness, all these other things that you're worried and anxious about, they're going to be added unto you. In other words, it's, it's not that the things we worry about are bad in and of themselves. It's just that he knows us so much better than we know ourselves, which puts him in a better position to provide for us the things we actually need in order to be glad and full of joy. Church, let me ask you this. Has he ever surprised you with joy in your life? Meaning, you were running, you were running full speed after one thing that you thought was the thing that you needed to have that joy, to have satisfaction and, and all of a sudden, it, is, it was taken from you. You didn't get it. It fell through. It was crushed in front of your face. And you had a little season of your life where you're sitting there going, okay, God, like, this is horrific. Why do you hate me? Because that was the thing that I needed to have joy. And then years later, you come to look back on what actually took place in those previous years, and you're going, you know what? What God did in that season was so much better than anything I could have designed for myself. You ever been surprised by joy like that? C.S. Lewis wrote a whole entire book on it, Surprised by Joy, where he talks about that that was the entirety of his life, trying to find joy and satisfaction in and of himself, only to find that, that Jesus, through the gospel, brings this joy and satisfaction that he was never able to attain himself. I've told you guys this story, but this is one of the most defining um, points in my life. Was, uh, it was that senior year of high school. And I've told you this, I'll, I'll be brief on this one right here, but uh, for me, coming in that, that senior year of high school, 
uh, you're making your plans for college. For me, it was Texas A&M. It was the only place I applied at that time. I was living in Houston. It made sense. My grades were fine. My recommendations were fine. All my activities were fine. I didn't even apply anywhere else. Was that confident of, uh, of being accepted there? Um, four times that senior year, my application kept getting sent back to me in the mail. The first time it was, hey, you forgot to sign this little thing over here. I'm like, dadgummit, all right, I sign it, I send it back in. Another time, it's the same thing, and, and, and they send it back, they're like, hey, you forgot to do this part right here. Or another time, it got lost in the mail, they never received it, I had to refill, refill it out one more time. Four times, church, throughout the course of his senior year, he's trying to do early enrollment, and obviously that didn't happen. Finally, the last one comes in, and I'd miss the final deadline. I get that letter from Texas A&M, and it says, hey, congratulations, you're, you're uh, approved to get into A&M for uh, fall of 1998 instead of 1997, or maybe it was 99 instead of 98, one of the two. Um, in other words, you're not admitted this next year. And I remember I had all these plans with the roommates and with the best friends. We knew where we were going to live. We knew how it was going to go down. We spent that entire senior year planning this out. I mean, we were so excited to get outside the home, to finally be free, do what the things we want to do, have go to college and stuff like that. And I remember getting that letter and just being furious. I took that letter, crumpled it up, threw it against the wall, had the pity party of all pity parties you've ever seen. Ran up to the room, was just angry and screaming, Lord, what are you doing? Why do you hate me? Like, why can't you see that this is, like, your presence is clearly at A&M. What are you doing? I mean, <laughs> like, I thought that, right? You're like, what are you doing here, God? Like, I, I was so angry. And I remember just screaming and crying, like, the whole deal, like, all of my plans that whole year uh, were just completely shattered. And finally, I was able to sit down and calm down long enough to see the Bible sitting on my bedside table. And I opened up to the Psalms, and I'm not kidding you, Psalm 46 is the Psalm that God used to minister to me in that moment. I open up in Psalm 46, and in the middle of the world crashing, out, crashing in around me as a high school senior, I read, be still and just know that I am God. And I was like, Lord, it doesn't feel like you're God right now. It feels like you have no control. It feels like you're against me. It just says, be still. Just know that I am God. I'm a fortress. I'm a, uh, I'm a refuge. I'm an ever-present help in times of trouble. I'm reading all these things and finally was able to slow down long enough and just say, okay, God, whatever you have in plan, I'm, really, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take it. The parents came in and they prayed and, and we just said, okay, Lord, you've clearly got different plans for this next year. Whatever it may be, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to accept it, whatever it is. And I remember kind of going like, I don't have a plan now. What am I going to do? This random lady that, was a, that knew my mom's ministry at the time, she was living in Colorado Springs. We were living in Houston, Texas. She reaches out to us and says, um, I just had the most bizarre dream in the world, and I believe that I'm supposed to send Aaron to Summit Ministries in Manitou Springs, Colorado. She flies from Colorado down to Houston to come meet with us and to tell us about this dream, to tell us about this whole thing. And we're sitting in the living room. I'm going, okay, crazy lady, what are, what, what's going on here? I, I'm like, all I heard was, I want to pay for two weeks for you to go to Colorado. I'm like, okay, I'll do two weeks in Colorado for free. So you can send me anywhere you want to. Manitou Springs, I'm in. And we're going to, going to Summit Ministries that summer. If you're familiar with this ministry, all it is, it is a leadership ministry designing, designed for high school graduates to be prepared to defend the faith well during their times in college. And so it's a lot of apologetics. It's a lot of defending the faith. It's a lot of going deeper into the faith and knowing how to um, engage skeptics with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, I loved it. It was a fantastic two weeks. I come back and, and, uh, and I'm like, all right, Lord, what now? I got to go to school somewhere. So I enrolled at Tomball Community College. 
And it was on my first day there. I signed up for a philosophy class, and that's where I met Dr. Norwood. Divine appointment number one right there. He was, if you've ever seen the movie, God's Not Dead. He goes, didn't win any Oscars. But anyway, um, like that's the story that played out over the course of the next year. He was the antagonistic, atheistic philosophy professor, and I was the Christian student in there that tried as best as we possibly can, politely and just intelligently, just engage the conversation. And the, fortunately, the whole format of the class was debate and conversation and, and, uh, and, and talking things through. And so we developed a great relationship where I'm, I'm pr- pr- lifting up the Christian perspective and he's kind of fighting back and forth. And we had this great relationship and I quickly realized, okay, Lord, God, there's something here. You brought me into this thing for a reason. We're praying for him all year long. And all I can say, church, is that it is a divine appointment kind of year. I signed up for two more of his classes in the spring semester. We have conversation after conversation after conversation. He gives me permission in the middle of a class. This atheistic philosophy professor gives me a pulpit, and he says, I w-, he goes, at the beginning of class, you've got two minutes to share what you believe about Jesus. Go. In the middle of a classroom, because we've been debating back and forth about a lot of different things, and he says, just go. And so it was just one appointment after another. Three weeks left in the semester, and uh, he comes in there, and he writes up on the chalkboard, I've been diagnosed with esophageal cancer. Today is going to be my last day. He writes it up on the board. He puts down the chalk, and he walks out the room, and class is dismissed. And at that point in time, almost an entire year had gone by. We've had dozens upon dozens of just uh, conversations in the class, in his office, with other students and not. I mean, just incredible things going on. And I'm sitting there going, Lord, what, what in the world was this all about? He's dying. He's gone. It's like, he, there's no prof- profession of faith. There's no convert. Like, what, what were you doing in this whole thing? I remember just praying and just being frantic and just saying, okay, Lord, like, what, what are you doing in this thing? I found out the hospital he was in. He wasn't taking visitors, so I set, started sending him packages and care packages and gifts and just as many things as I possibly could to just say, you know, I love you, care about you, and you've got to consider the things that we've been talking about all year long. Semester ends and we go back to Summit Ministries that summer because it was so central in what God was doing in me at that time. The last day I'm there at Summit, I get the note that Dr. Norwood had passed away. And once again, I'm furious and angry. I'm like, Lord, what was that about? Like all of that, all of that for nothing. Like what, what was that about? I come back and it wasn't for nothing. That whole year I started serving at the church, um, realizing I love the church and I love preaching God's word. And as best as we can, we started a high school ministry outside reaching these students, and I was supposed to preach that next night after some, it was back there in the summer. I had no idea what I was going to preach on that next, mor- that next evening, and I come back, and there's this letter on the, on the kitchen table. It's about 1130 at night, something like that, and I see this letter. It's from Dr. Norwood's widow, and he says, uh, she just introduces herself to me and just says, hey, um, Dr. Nor- I wanted to let you know Dr. Norwood t- spoke a lot about you. He told me all year long about all your interactions, the things that you were sharing, he was intrigued, and I want you to know that he was listening the entire time. I thought you'd want to know that in the last moments before he passed away, he talked about how beautiful it was that God was coming to receive him and that he'd be able to be in his presence forever and ever and ever again. I don't know what everything that you guys talked about, but I thought that you would want to know how he passed away. I remember taking that letter and just there was just this beautiful affirmation that God was totally and completely in control when I couldn't see anything that was going on around me. I remember just weeping. I woke up my parents like midnight. I'm like, you gotta see this letter. We're celebrating and just praising God. 
Church, like that was the defining time in my life. God used that entire year to change the trajectory of my life forever and ever and ever. Like that was the year he let me fall in love with the church. That was the year I discovered preaching and teaching God's word and, and getting into ministry and learning how to defend the faith and all these different kinds of things that were taking place. And it started a year prior with me throwing things at a wall, cursing God, saying, Lord, you don't know what to do. Church, what I'm trying to tell you is that he knows exactly what he's doing. He is like a, he is like a stream who makes glad the city of God. He knows how to bring you joy. He knows how to bring you satisfaction. He knows how to direct your steps. He knows how to provide you all the things that you think that you need and all the things that you actually need when you don't know what you actually need. Church, he knows all those things. He is like a river whose streams make glad the city of God, and he knows how to satisfy your soul. Verse 5 and 7, he's going to say he's the with us God who helps us when the morning dawns. And I love that imagery right now because some of you need to hear that help is coming in the morning. Some of you are in the middle of the night right now and all you can see is the darkness around you and you need to be assured that there is help that is coming whenever the morning comes and it's all in the timing of God. But you may be there. You may be in that season of transition where you're going, Lord, I loved Dallas. I loved this job. I love this home. I love this community. I love these friends. And he is disrupting whatever's going on around you. And you're sitting there going, Lord, what in the world are you doing? And you need to simply hear that he is the with us God who gives you help when morning dawns. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe you're in this season where you're sitting there kind of going, uh, I'm lonely. I need companionship. I have no one around me. Uh, I, I've lost my loved one. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to Joyce Sherrod a number of weeks ago. Joyce is a, a beloved saint in our church for a really, really long time. Uh, she was recently widowed a few years back uh, in her mid-80s, I believe, and has recently moved to California to go be with her grandkids and her great-grandkids to help raise them up a little bit more. But I was talking with her a little while ago. I goes, Joyce, how are you doing? And she's like, oh, honey, I miss the church. I miss you guys so much. And she goes, honestly, I miss my husband. I miss my husband. I miss having someone to come home to at night. But can I just tell you, that has just allowed me so much more time to be with Jesus. And he is so good. He is so satisfying. Honey, she always calls me honey. She's like, honey, do you know? Like he, he is so satisfying. And I've just enjoyed my time with him. And he has provided every step along the way. Church, some of you are in that season of loneliness, and that's the thing that's bringing you fear and anxiety. Am I ever going to have companionship again? And I want you to know that he is with you in the middle of that thing. It's not just this, it's not just a lip service that we see. He can bring you a companionship that brings satisfaction to your soul that you did not even know could possibly be, could be there. Some of us, it's, it's a money that's, that's making us afraid or fearful or anxious, and we're kind of sitting there going, okay, how in the world are we ever, ever going to have enough for college or for retirement or whatever that thing may be? And a few chapters later, like, the psalmist is going to remind us that he's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Like, he's the one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's the one who speaks and things come into being. He's the one who makes it rain bread and manna from heaven. He's the one who provides all things. Church, like I promise you, he's able to provide. And you know what? Like he's able to provide so, something so much better than money can. You know what that is? It's contentment. He can provide contentment. It's what Paul talks about. In Philippians chapter 4 when he says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Church, some of us are praying for money and you need to be praying for contentment. Some of us are pursuing things and you need to be pursuing satisfaction in him. 
Because what he's saying is that he is like a river whose streams make glad the city of God. That gladness that you are pursuing is not found in those things. It is found in him and in what you know about him. The whole thing is about that. Some of us, it's marriage that is, te- that is tearing us apart and fear and anxiety. And you're sitting there kind of going, okay, there is no hope whatsoever for my marriage. Like there's no hope of being satisfied here. There's no hope of this thing coming back again. There's no hope for repentance in my spouse, repentance in me. And he's gonna say in verse nine that he is the all-powerful God who makes wars cease to the end of the earth. Church, some of you need to hear that he can make your war cease. If he can make enemies put down their weapons, he can bring stillness and satisfaction to your soul that will bring peace and healing inside of your broken marriage. He can restore those things. Church, it's what he does. He speaks and the storms are silent. He speaks and the waves all of a sudden go away. Like he can speak and and he can bring silence to the anger and the rage that is waging war inside of your heart, which is ruining your marriage today. Like he can speak and heal you from the things uh, that are killing your relationship today. He can replace them with things like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, all these different things that you need for a flourishing relationship today. Church, it's what he does. It's what he does. He brings healing and he brings, he brings peace and he brings wholeness back to certain things if you are still and you know that he is God. Church, some of the most beautiful marriages in this room today are marriages that have been, had to be pieced back together at some point in the past. Some of you know this. I'm thinking of some good friends of ours about 16 years ago. It was only about a year into the marriage and they were done. They threw in the hat. They called us up and they're like, I'm done. I don't care if he leaves. He's saying the same thing. I don't care if she leaves. They were in this place where the things that they were saying to one another were so hurtful that they were just like, I I don't know how you come back from this thing. Some of us know exactly what they're talking about. They're ready to toss it in. One night he finally goes, he goes to church. They've been in the church forever. But he finally was at the end of his rope and God just met him in this worship service. It wasn't this crazy thing. It wasn't this lightning from the sky or anything like that. It was just very simply God getting a hold of his heart and getting him to a place where he finally realized that there was a help that he needed that only God could provide. And the way he talks about it today, he just says, you know, I finally just just stopped fighting God. I finally stopped fighting God. And I just let go and I said, Lord, I need you to help me. The problems that I'm so angry about that I can only see in her, like these are problems that begin in me. And he just said, I finally stopped fighting God and I let go. He agreed to finally go to recovery for his anger problems. It was a long time, took took a lot of time to heal some of the past wounds that were were opening up and, and resurfacing, which is bringing about all this anger and coming out in his relationship today. His wife went through healing herself to deal with a lot of her old wounds and the things that were there that she didn't even realize were there at that point in time. They came together much later on, months and months and months of individual work, coming together finally and going to counseling together. And he said, I love what he said. He goes, basically, Aaron, he goes, I had to relearn. I had to learn from scratch what it looked like to love someone because I'd never seen it done well in my life. I married someone and I had no idea how to love them. I didn't know how to receive that love from the Father ever before. And so I always put up a stiff arm right there, but I never saw it in my family at home either. And he goes, basically, this is me surrendering to the, Lord of, to the Lordship of God, saying, God, teach me again how to love another person. Love me in such a way that I can go and love someone else the exact same way. 
And he goes, it's exactly what God did. He just met me in that thing. Can I just say, church, we just watched over the years to come, God just breathed life into this dead, empty marriage over time. And church, some of you are there because like some of the most beautiful marriages you look, you see around you today, like they're marriages that had to be pieced together at some point in the past. Think of another one that, that actually went through the divorce. There was adultery there, it wrecked the whole thing. There was a number of years living with another person. Finally, God brought that person to the end of the rope. Unbelievable, miraculous healing took place individually. Years later, they come back together, remarry again, flourishing family today, in love with each other, the joy restored. We're not talking about just like suffering through this commitment that you made a long time ago, joy actually being restored. What I'm trying to say, church, is like that's what he does. It's what he does. He is like a river whose streams make glad the city of God. But here it is, church, you've got to stop fighting and you've got to know that he is God. It's all about what you know in that moment. Fear says that it can't be done. Fear says it's impossible. Fear says it's never going to come again. Fear says all these different lies. And the psalmist is reminding us over and over again, no, 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 like he's the all-powerful God who makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He is the with us God who helps us when the morning dawns. He's like a river whose streams make glad the city of God. He is our refuge and he is our strength and he is a very present help in times of trouble. And church, here it is, because he is all that and more, we do not have to live in a, so, much, so anxious and hurried all the time and we can just simply sit there and we can be still and we can know that he is God. One of my favorite hymns that we sing a lot is one written by Martin Luther. It's called A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. You guys know this song at all? Maybe you grew up singing it back in the day. It's still got um, old English lyrics. It's kind of fun. Some of the lyrics is simply, we're singing this every single time we read it. But it's a, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. That's what we're singing when we sing that song. A mighty fortress is our God. He is a bulwark who is never failing. He is our helper. He amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. I love, uh, the th I think it's the third stand. It says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. In other words, the things that you're afraid of, they're legit. The devil is trying to undo these things. We will not be afraid for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. You know what was going on in Martin Luther's life when he wrote this psalm? It was somewhere around 1520 and it was just after he was excommunicated from the Catholic Church. The Pope had just um, issued this decree put a bounty on his head so that he could be formally charged as a heretic and put to death. And he tells a story of uh, coming from his own sentencing. He was hiding in the crowds. And uh, the Pope had just put the bounty upon his head and he was quickly retreating, running away, knowing that people were trying to capture him so that he would be put to death as a heretic, trying to hide along the way. All of a sudden, a masked horseman comes and he grabs him in the middle of that fleeing. Now, the good news is he was a friend and was not an enemy. But this masked horseman takes him to a castle in Germany. Um, his name was Frederick III. He was the only, only man powerful enough to oppose the Pope at that time. So he brings him in, and he takes him to the castle of Wartburg. I think I've got a picture of that. That's what it looks like. That's where he brought him. And that's where he would spend the next year of his life literally sitting in a walled fortress, sitting on top of a 1,200-foot precipice where he was being protected by God from his actual literal enemies. Church, from there, Martin Luther would lay the foundation for the Protestant Reformation. He would translate the Greek New Testament into German, 
And then, of course, in his spare time, he would write hymns like this, like where he's meditating upon Psalm 46 and sitting in a literal fortress. And he would write words like this, a mighty fortress is our God. You are a bulwark. You are never, ever, ever failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. We will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. I'm telling you, church, like when you know who he is, stillness won't have to be something that's commanded of you because it'll already be real. Jeremiah Burroughs, he's an old Puritan. He says, you don't pour wine into a shaky glass. I love that image. It's like a waiter's coming over. Would you like more wine? And you're like, yes, of course. They're like, just pour it in here. And he's going, you don't pour wine into a shaky glass. It's like first that glass has to be still, and then you pour the wine in. Point of the matter, church, is there is peace ready to be poured into your life. There is protection. There is gladness. There is help. There is contentment. But you have to know that he is God. You have to know that he is God. Because your problems, they're not really the problems. It's how you think about your problems that are really the problem. So, Father, I just pray that you would allow us to be still right now. Father, I pray that you would still fear, that you would still anxiety, that you would be lifted up high, that we would know that you are a mighty fortress. You're a bulwark never failing. You are a refuge. You're an ever-present help in times of trouble. It's who you are, God. It's what you do. You're a healer. You're a redeemer. You're our helper, God. You're with us. You're with us when it's nighttime. You're with us in the morning. Father, I pray that you would still someone's fear and anxiety today. 